This is one of two podcast episodes featuring full interviews with key architects who explain how HDB designs for Singapore's public housing flats have evolved over the decades. They are linked to a special infographic by The Straits Times. You can find the link to it in our show notes. You are listening to a podcast by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. We see public housing all around us. They are in older towns such as Queenstown and Topayo and in newer ones like Pongo and Bidadari. 8 in 10 Singaporeans live in HDB flats. But how have HDB blocks evolved over the decades? What has worked out and what hasn't? So I've invited some experts to help me connect the dots in the evolution of HDB towns and block designs. I'm here with guest Dr Liu Taiker, who is widely known as the architect of modern Singapore. This is because he has helped to plan 20 out of the 24 HDB towns in Singapore. Mr. Liu, so your time in HDB started in 1969 to 1989, right? It's two decades. What was the most pressing issues that you had to resolve and what were your solutions for it? One, of course, uh, because it's public housing and by the time I came in, we already had this uh, home ownership for sale policy, which is very unique in the world until today. Not many cities in the world actually built public housing for sale, but we started the concept in 1964. But uh, as I mentioned, we still had a lot of squatters and our construction industry was still backward. So we, on the one hand, we have to improve our planning skill. At the same time, we want to make sure that the uh, flat design is done it's designed in a way that's highly livable and also the floor area meets close to the world standard because I believe in those days when we were very, very poor, I believe that whatever we design must be close to or equal to the world standard so that Singaporeans, once they move into HDB flats, they actually enjoy the world-class standard housing and not just a backward city housing. So that, so that was another challenge. And the other one, of course, is uh, the essence of public housing is low cost. Of course, in those days, we did not call it public housing. We call it low-cost housing. But it's only in the mid or late 70s, I felt that the word low-cost housing gave people who live in HCB a, a kind of inferior complex. So we changed it to public housing. But the concept of low-cost is still there because uh, if we build public housing for its home ownership for everybody, we must keep the cost low so that it's affordable. So affordability was another challenge. And the other thing was because in those days there were still a lot of homeless people, not only among the squatters, also people who live in the slum area in the city. So there was a big pressure for us to catch up. In other words, to reduce the waiting time. In the beginning, it was like three and a half to four years to wait. And we gradually reduced it to around, I can't remember exactly, around one and a half to two years. Because you need one and a half to two years to design and build. You cannot make it shorter than that. So all these things were challenges in those days. You know. 
Mr. Liu, so you said just now when you first joined HDB, they only built three-room flats. And the reason for building only three-room flats is because you want to keep the cost down. No, 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 not cost. We built three-rooms so that the rental that we had to charge was not too high, was low enough to be affordable by Singaporean in those days. The selling price we had to charge was affordable by residents in those days. And actually, I heard a story from Dejiang Wan. That means before I joined HCB, maybe around 1967 and so on, or 68, this uh, an American politician, McNamara, came. And when Mr. Dejiang Wan told him that our selling price for three-room flat in those days was $7,800. Wow. <laughs> McNamara said, wow, it's... We, we can't even buy a car at that price. That's how, you know, this low-cost affordability was a very key concept all the way to even when I left at 1989, I was still making sure two important things. One is low-cost. The other thing is shortening the waiting time. What does a livable public housing look like? Well, the the fortunate thing for me in those days is when I was in HDB, we had a very powerful estates division because during my time, the, one of the big blessings during my time is that not only we built public housing, we managed the public housing. The beauty of managing public housing is we get huge amount of complaints. That's a beauty now. Of course, uh, there are two ways to deal with the complaint. One is to uh, toss a complaint into the waste paper basket as a nuisance. But I actually organized the research unit among architects, engineers, estate officers. And because of the research, I organized, I actually built up a sociological department for the sociologists with nine sociologists with PhD degree to help me see through some of this complaint and, and tell me how we can improve it. So when you see our public housing today, what you see is a concrete and steel. But behind that, there's a lot of software thinking among the sociologists. We, Of course, we have to, the, the input must be to solve the social problem, living problem, comfort level, and so on. We have to translate that into the design, the building design, the estate planning, and so on. And therefore, even though architects also want to be creative, and and I disallow myself to design any single flat design by myself. Every time we get the feedback from the sociologists and engineers and architects and estate officers, I would sit down among all these people to discuss a floor plan amendment, one room, two room, three room, and later four room, five room. So not a single one was designed by me alone. It was all a collective effort. And actually, I can tell you a lot of detail how even the position of window, the position of a doors, and so on, they're all based on feedback to make it livable. So that's why I, I treat design Architecture design, basic, 
st- starting point is, or I treat the uh, Newtown planning, starting point is treat it as a science to make it livable and convenient. And then after that, of course, we have put, put in uh, aesthetic beauty to it. So when you approach a design of a HDB block, it's always from how you can make it best for the users. And best then and you also think about how to make it look good. Best and also uh, respectful of their lifestyle, even sometimes their religious beliefs. How does that work in designing a block? How, how does it relate to designing a block? For example, if you look at a typical three-room flat, when the door opens, you did not see the kitchen. There's a solid wall facing the door. No. Why? Because by doing so, because kitchen normally is messy, when you do that, if you, if you put the kitchen door immediately behind the front door, you see the mess. But here you don't. You know, it's blocked. Not only that, a lot of people want to put altar on that wall to face the front door. So this is just one of the little many details that we have to consider. So when you enjoy your HDB flat, treat it that you're actually entering a machine for highly livable environment. The clover block in Ang Mokyo, the little four clover shaped Ang Mokyo block, you, you said you had a you said you're familiar with the block and you had a hand in it. Can you share a bit more about how did this block come about? Why do you make such a unique looking shape? And why we don't see such flats anymore? Well, I maybe I'll just give you a slightly longer reply. Again, I'm talking about the importance of science. For our tropical weather, slab block is actually more conducive to tropical weather. Especially if you put the slab block facing north and south, you avoid the very hot afternoon sun from the west. But at the same time, when the slab block you catch the north-south wind because the prevailing wind is from northeast to southwest. So slab block is environmentally more friendly. And also if you do that, you save some electricity because you don't have to turn on aircon. Most of the time you could just have a fan, that's enough. But on the other hand, partly to give the skyline some kind of variety, we decided we keep the point block as well. Back to the slab block. If you have a slab block, you have a longer corridor. In the beginning, it was too long. I, sep- I segmentized them into groups of six to eight so that when you step out, you actually have about five or six neighbors to communicate with. And therefore, you don't feel that you're living alone in this big new town. You have neighbors so you don't have too many choices of neighbors. But for the sake of variety, we still keep a small number of point blocks. And also there are people who don't want to have neighbors, so they are quite happy to stay in the point block. So actually for public housing, it's best to have the walls in straight lines because if the walls are in straight lines, it's easier for you to put a bed for tables and so on because most table beds are so rectangular shape. But uh, when my architect one day proposed to have this curved shape, inside, I told them, I said, frankly, from the scientific point of view, this is not too suitable for housing because it's very difficult to put the furniture inside, especially when the curvature is so, so sharp. 
And also, it's very hard to put it. However, there might be a small number of people who just get attracted by the shape and they, they don't mind paying higher price for a more expensive furniture. I said, I don't want this to be done too often, but yeah, I would say small amount we can do. That's how it, you don't see too many of them. That's the story behind it. But human beings are not all uniform. Some people just like this, this shape and they're prepared to pay the higher price, the price of furnishing for them. And now, in, in every environment, if you have a few kind of landmark-like buildings, it also gives the location a sense of identity. You know? So that's a thought behind it. How did this curve block in Amokyo build a sense of community or gave Amokyo a unique identity no, at that point in time? It's not a sense of community. It's just that we need to have a bit of slab, majority slab block a small number of point blocks give the skyline some variety. It's not, nothing to do with community. A slab block actually gives a better sense of community. That means even though you live in a block, but the moment you step out of your room, your, your flat, you, you are in a corridor with six or seven uh, neighbors. That gives you a sense of community. But in a point block, there are only three other neighbors. And therefore, the chance of creating a and also the slab rock, the corridor is facing the sky. You can treat it as a semi-outdoor space. But the point block, the lift lobbies is more internal. From a social point of view and environmental point of view, slab rock is better. But, but for variety, we have point block. And also there are people who just want to be private. So point block suits them very well. So for this reason, we just built a small number of them. Would you say that right now, Singaporeans prefer point blocks rather than slab blocks? Is there a preference by Singaporeans when they buy homes? Uh, no, I would say, of course, I haven't done proper survey, but I would say during my time, the feedback from estate officers, they were happy with the slab block. Because first of all, the ventilation is better. Second, lighting is better. Third, you have got neighbours. And... Actually, having more neighbors also give you a sense of security as well. So your personal preference is slab blocks. You think slab blocks are better than... From the sociological point of view, environmental point of view, slab block is more suitable for living. But not everybody has the same value system for their living. So there are people who just want to be alone. So point block just suits them perfectly. There are people who just don't want to have neighbor. They just want to be alone. I mean, we have to cater for all kinds of variety. Just now, so we talk about the super long Wampo block, the one that was built in 1971. Why did they decide to have such long blocks in the past? Well, I, I was not involved in that. So I really cannot speak for the designer. But I imagine, uh, if I can make a guess, I think it's because it's on a curve corner and the designing architect wanted to design something that becomes a kind of design statement so people take notice of it. But the, the reason I did not allow myself to design very long slab block is because a human being can only relate to up to a certain number of neighbors. So 
My sociologist told me that if you have too many neighbors, it becomes you lose your privacy and you cannot relate to all of them. So a kind of optimum level is like seven to eight neighbors. That's why the slab logs in the beginning were just one long corridor. Later was cut down to cut to segments of eight or six so that you have a real relationship with your neighbors. But when the slab when the slab is very long, first of all, you become just a digit in the big block. You don't have a sense of belonging. But at the same time, when you do that, you block the flow of the wind. So this is not my invention. This was through discussion. That's why I mentioned to you, I did not allow myself to design anything by myself. It's always through careful discussion. And therefore, during my time, we cut the slab block in shorter lengths. So because if you have a very long block, you can tell your friend, oh, I live in that block because you are just a digit. But if it's a shorter one, say, yes, this is my block, a sense of ownership. So actually, you can see that what you see in HCB is a concrete and steel, but there's a lot of software thinking behind it by sociologists, by estate officers, because estate officers, when they used to talk to the residents to get their feedback, and so although they're not trained as sociologists, but they give me a lot of social feedback. What are some key architectural features that were prominent in your days? Well, just now I keep emphasizing that the key thing about public housing is affordability. Mm. No. So on the one hand, I will not compromise on the floor area. It must be world standard. The one-room flat must be world standard one-room flat, two-room flat, and so on. For your information, the earlier one-room flat floor area was 24 square meter. The current one is 36 square meter net because the feedback from the estate officers and uh, the sociology told me that 24 square meter is hard for a person to live there. And so we actually study how the laying of the the beds and the kitchen equipment and the dining table. So we felt that I was convinced that the minimum we must give to a, that one-room plan has to be 36. So I presented to my boss. I said, look, from now on, can we build only 36 and no more 24? He agreed because my reasoning was very scientifically convincing. So all these things is done very objectively. Can I also get your thoughts on, say, a five-room flat? In the past, five-room flat is like 115 square meters. Now, we have 105 square meters, for example. In the past, it's 125. Oh. Yeah. This is one thing I'm feeling a bit sad because in those days, what I did not compromise, I did not allow myself to compromise was floor area, and second, the floor area must be of good standard. The selling price must be affordable according to the income of those days. But my understanding is now the selling prices, the, the construction cost is higher, selling price is higher, and therefore to make it affordable, they're compromised on the 
floor area. Personally, I feel that compromising on floor area is not a good idea. And how did I manage to make it affordable? Is that I did not allow myself to do decoration to the building because if you add decoration to a building, it actually incur extra cost. When you interviewed for a book called Everyday Modernism, you were quoted saying with this concept of a courtyard in the sky. Can you explain a little bit more about this concept? Yeah, it's used extensively. Because in the beginning, the slab block, the corridors is running from one end to the other end. And I was advised by my sociologist that one thing is that how high is a building too high from the ground and, and a person losing his emotional time with the ground, how high is that? They told me around seven stories. That means up to seven story, you still feel that you belong to the ground. But above that, you don't feel the time, the emotional time. Then the second question, which I answered earlier, is how many neighbors you normally would comfortably relate to, to have a meaningful neighborly relationship? They said maybe seven to eight maximum. So because of that, I decided that I would chop the long corridor from one end of the block to the other into groups of six or seven, eight and six. So when you walk out of your block, of your apartment, you have either five or seven neighbors. And when you have five or seven neighbors mixing in a corridor, if it's a corridor purely for people to circulate, it's not very conducive for people to sit down and chat. So I decided to make the corridor wider so that it's wide enough for people to even put some chairs there to sit down and chat. So that means even though you live higher than seven story, you have a courtyard in the sky to mix with our neighbors. Now, I'm taking trouble to explain this and hope that HCB residents actually uh, know this concept and enjoy their living even better. So this concept of courtyard in the sky is because now we are building blocks more than seven stories, so we are getting further and further the losing, losing, losing the connection to the ground. Yeah, so we need the courtyard in the sky so that they gather high, high up and feel that they're still connected to each other. Right, okay. I Initially, I thought it was something like, say, sky gardens that are very popular these days. You know, like in Pinnacle, we have a sky garden on like the 50th story kind. We're not just building housing for people to live. We're building communities. Maybe on the subject of community, I want to add that in HCB, I mentioned earlier, I tried to find out the specifications for every element of a new town. And below the new town, we broke it down to neighborhoods, the specification for every neighborhood. I did that as well with uh, my colleagues' help. But then I realized that a neighborhood is too big for any architect to design the building layout of the neighborhood and give a sense of individuality. So then I asked sociologists again, below the neighborhood, is there a lowest concept of community? And that's how we came up with the idea of precinct. Now, the word precinct, as a planning jargon, is probably non-existent anywhere else in the world. It's only in Singapore. But when I was young, I read a lot of planning books that a human being can have an emotional tie with the 
land, if the land is around five acres, which is like around two, two to three hectares. So, but two to three hectares is a bit too small for me to put in one, two, three, four, five rooms together. So we make it more like three to four hectares to create a precinct. That means when you live in a precinct, you have an emotional tie to the land. And my sociologist also advised me to give a sense of belonging. The entries, the car entry to the precinct would be only one car entry, not two. So every time you go in and out, you see your neighbor's face. And so you just keep saying hello, hello. And at the same time, if there's a stranger coming in, they immediately notice as a stranger. So that sense of community builds up very strongly. And in the center of the precinct, again, as I was advised, we should have a precinct park with sand pits and so on, and a play equipment for the kids to play. And we've arranged the uh, seats, not in a straight line, but in a curved area so that when the neighbors sit down, even though they may not know each other very well, but when put in a curved style, the neighbors can't help but look at each other's face, and then they started talking. That creates a sense of community. The desire to create a sense of community led to the creation of precinct. I was hoping that I would see that it actually works, but for many, many years, I didn't see any evidence of working. But uh, more recently, I think, as you all know, if there's a National Day celebration, each precinct will have their own design. And also nowadays, you know, the precinct by precinct, they plant their vegetables, they plant the flowers, and so precinct by precinct. So the precinct concept works. So I'm actually happy that to have this opportunity to explain all this thing and help the HDB residents, first of all, understand the design behind it, and second, make better use of the design. Mr. Liu, is there a concept or idea of yours that you are very proud of, that you feel that it has translated well from back in your time until today? No, there are, there are quite a few important things. One is, to plan a city well, we must plan long-term. Mm. So in those days, I actually planned Singapore for 100 years, but I was too scared to use the word 100 years. So I use the word year X. But nowadays, when I plan for other cities, I use 50 years because I feel that and there's a talk that uh, the human population cannot keep increasing. By 50 years, we're reaching a kind of maximum level. The world cannot support any more human beings. So I use 50 years. So planning long-term, planning for the whole city is important. But if you can do that, you also must make sure all the God-given assets, like beautiful nature, lakes, forests, and so on, historical building and so on, must be kept. Mm. Because they give you a sense of soul, a sense of memory. So this was some of the guiding principles behind it. And then after that, then you built new development. But despite that, when I did the 1991 concept plan, fearing that Singapore is a city with no hinterland, so I still kept a lot of land undeveloped, just in case. And in looking back, my Singapore virtues, Gansu attitude, actually, you know, pays off, provided it's well used. But the government has not taken any action on that. Because if you plan for 10 million, it's not only that you plan long term, 
you identify the location for public housing, you know where to build, you know how much you can build because you have bought the land, and then we can keep the public housing prices affordable. So it has kind of multiple benefits. So long-term planning is not just a matter of timing. It, has, it brings in a lot of benefits. Mr. Liu, so Tengah is coming up. In future, we will have Greater Southern Waterfront, Paya Lebar Air Base, uh, all these areas. What are your thoughts on these new towns that will be coming up? Well, I really hope that these new towns can be planned in the context of a 10 million population so that they, we can define the boundaries in a more holistic way. During my time in planning the first 20 new towns, I have already, through research, through collaboration with my colleagues, we actually developed a big set of guidelines, which has now proven to be workable. But I, I hope that my successor would try to take the trouble to learn what those success factors were and not just come in and do all their creative, untested things. Can you share, elaborate a little bit more on this set of guidelines? For example, one of the key features of HGB New Towns is that besides the town centre, we have neighbourhood centres. And we did a lot of research that in a tropical environment, people don't want to walk more than 500 metres because of heat. So I tried to plan the neighbourhood, but 500 metres is too small for me to support a neighbourhood. I planned like 600 metres so just a little bit extra. If you do that, you look at the new town I planned, like Amokyo, Bedok. If you draw the 600-meter circle around each neighborhood, they cover the entire new town. That means everybody in the new town can walk around 600 meters to the neighborhood center. But you try to look at the newer ones, they don't cover. They sometimes overlap too much, and sometimes they have gaps in between. Now, this is very simple planning skill that I developed, but my successor obviously did not bother to know. Mm, understand. So, is there a hope for public housing in Singapore? Like, what's your hope for public housing in Singapore to look like, say, 10, 20, 30 years from now? How do you think it will look different from what you had started with? I would say plan for 10 million first identify where the new new towns are and plan them with the principle that I have developed and proven to be successful. And then also in terms of architectural design, try to treat it as a scientific effort and not just kind of artistic uh, venture. Of course, it's scientific effort plus artistic design. So it can look beautiful, but first it has to be But very functional, yes. yes. Well, that's a wrap for this podcast by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read more of my articles on housing data and trends in Singapore, there is a link in the podcast text description below. Thanks for listening. This is one of two podcast episodes featuring full interviews with key architects who explain how HDB designs for Singapore's public housing flats have evolved over the decades. They are linked to a special infographic by The Straits Times. You can find the link to it in our show notes.